Welcome to A New Republic, an oral history of the Indian Constitution. Episode 5, A Little Debate. Welcome back. So in this episode of the podcast, I'm going to shake up the format a little bit and I'm going to bring um, into the show a second voice. So what is the second voice going to do? Now, so far, we've discussed uh, the history of the Indian Constitution uh, between the periods of uh, the Revolt of 1857 and the First World War. And in this episode, we look at a little bit of the important uh, area we've covered so far, but also look ahead to the story of the Constitution after the First World War. And I'm going to do this in conversation with Rohit Day. Now, before I talk to you about Rohit, why, why do I need a second voice? Now, I have two uh, reasons. The first one is to um, break the monotony of just having to listen to me. A second voice will spice things up a little bit. And secondly, which is the more important reason, is I want to make sure that you're not entirely enslaved to my amateur analysis. So hopefully, when people like Rohit, they come on board, they'll give you uh, differing perspectives and uh, I might disagree with him on various aspects, which I think is good and uh, which gives you different things to think about. So who is Rohit? Rohit is a uh, Mellon postdoctoral fellow at the Center for History and Economics at Cambridge University and will soon receive his PhD from Princeton. And according to his website, and I quote, his current research explores how the Indian constitution, despite its elite authorship and alien antecedents, came to permeate everyday life and imagination in India during its transition from a colonial state to a post-colonial republic. Very nice. Um, also, incidentally, Rohit teaches uh, elements of constitutional history at a couple of law schools in India. Now, during our initial email exchange, Rohit made an interesting observation. He said that scholarly interest in India uh, in the constitution had somewhat waned starting from the 1970s. So that is what uh, we started our, con our conversation with. What led to this waning of interest? So uh, perhaps I should uh, have clarified my comments. Uh, by interest, I mean interests by historians uh -huh, uh -huh. Uh, who stopped sort of looking at constitutional history as an area uh, to work on. Lawyers, because of the bread and butter, have always been writing about the constitution. Uh, so the reason why historians sort of stopped looking at the constitution in the 70s, there's sort of three interconnected reasons. Um, the first is, um, in some ways, when you think of the constitutional narrative, in fact, it um, comes through even when, when I listen to your programs, um, so you sort of begin the story with sort of with British uh, legislation. Uh, so in, in 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 that sense, it sort of gives a, a lot of credence to um, a British argument that you know what the British were doing were merely preparing people for self-governance, and the constitution is somewhat an inevitable step to a series of reforms that have been happening for many years. So people who wanted to break out of this narrative, sort of tried to focus on other things to show what happens with with the independent movement was actually very different and not necessarily a sort of progression, a slow steps from the British. Uh -huh. um, the second sort of area of critique came from a move in uh, sort of history writing more generally, where the emphasis was on um, thinking about lives of uh, common people and not about things that kings and ministers do. So the constitution was seen as sort of particularly high politics and, and not seen as something that, you know, there's much that people can speak about. Uh, but perhaps what's most profound was uh, the 70s was also when the emergency happened. And there's a degree of disillusionment with um, uh, the form of the Indian state and the constitution. And the argument is that um, 
the constitution is unable to prevent something like the emergency. Um, therefore, law by itself or words by themselves have very little meaning. Um, ultimately, what works is sort of structures of power and economics. So the constitution in particular and law in general was very epiphenomenal and, you know, it's just about class or it's just about caste. It's not, it doesn't have a, a particular meaning in itself. It can be used very instrumentally by other people. But just how valid are these three uh, critiques? Now, remember, the first one is applicable to this podcast. Um, I have depended on British antecedents to largely tell the story so far. So this is Rohit again on those three specific critiques of constitutional history. So uh, maybe I should take them one one by one. I, I mean, to an extent, all of them are true. I mean, that's undeniable. Uh, however, it, it uh, such an approach sort of um, for misses out on two things. One is that ideas have 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 a power in themselves, and secondly, that um, uh, the constitution that came up in 1950 was not just a product of these sort of series of British acts that appeared one after the other. Uh, you know, going back to Tilak in 1895, there were attempts by different groups of Indians to imagine sort of alternative constitutions. And and what happens in 1950 is an amalgamation of, of various different kinds of sort of streams. So one clearly is this British legislative stream, uh-huh. but there's also sort of a Congress-produced uh, sort of political stream. There's a social movement stream, uh, which includes Gandhians and groups like uh, women's groups, which have been which have been advocating. So all of them come and feed into the narrative. And, you know, I mean, the, the last bit, and that's something that my work right now deals with, is that it's very hard. I think people can't, it, it, it became, we all, whether we want to or not, have to deal with the Constitution in some way or the other. It could be um, something as simple as, um, you know, supposing you're a, you're a businessman and you find that uh, the government refuses you a permit. Um, one of the one of the ways in which you can challenge the fact that the permit was not given to you is to appeal to constitutional norms. Alternatively, if you're a if you're a schoolgirl, and this is a case from Bombay in the 50s, and the Bombay government passed the rule saying that you can only study in your mother tongue, and, and this girl wants to study in English, one of the few recourses she and her parents have is to turn to this constitutional language. So um, I, I think that it's uh, it might it, it 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 might very well be originally a product of uh, certain sets of interests, but once it goes into operation, it allows for other people to participate in it. Um, there's a great analogy uh, this guy called Sandy Levinson makes on the American Constitution, and he says there are two ways of reading the Constitution. One is the Catholic way, which is, you know, you have an institutional version that is given, and you have to all accept it. Uh-huh. And the Protestant way, which, you know, you each of you sort of pick up the Constitution as your text, and you decide what is it that, what words these have, what, what meaning a particular section has to you. So it's... Uh, um, it doesn't necessarily, and in fact, um, you know, very often uh, the constitution functions in ways in which people in power can't always predict. So, so there have been moments where they've equally been surprised by it. So I think it's a more complicated story, and I think to to dismiss it as as something that is only sort of imperial or class interest is is uh, not, you know, is, is selling is selling the narrative short. So. Now that I've gotten that bit of. Uh of a critique of constitutional history out of the way, I asked Rohit how important this early part of uh, the constitution history was. And I'm referring to the the bits we've handled so far on this podcast. That is the early acts between the onset of the British Raj and the um, breakout of the First World War. How important were these bills and acts and what lasting legacy did they have on the constitution? In other words, 
um, when we drew up the constitution in 1950, were there any remnants of these early reforms in them? So, you know, there is um, uh, something called uh, path dependency that economists and uh, political scientists talk about, which is if you set up certain structures early enough, it, it sort of shapes how further structures come in. So to that extent, in terms of how um, sort of the, the shape of sort of the broad architecture of the state looks, so there's a, there's a government in the center, there's a sort of three or four step government in the provinces. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that goes back to this period. Um, um, and, and essentially what, what, what a lot of these reforms, where these come from is after the revolt of 1857, there's a real sense that a government in India has to be sort of reorganized to make it uh, more efficient and to enable central control over the provinces better. And uh, it leads to a very powerful position of the governor general uh, in, in Delhi and, 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 and those sort of structures go back to that date. Um, the other thing that you pointed out uh, through, through a lot of these is there's a, there's a sort of push towards having some kind of what they would call native representation. And while at the level of the provincial governments or uh, the central government, it's sort of very, uh, very uh, formal at the most, uh, most of these positions are filled by sort of landlords and maharajas who are sort of indebted to the British to begin with, or by retired civil servants. Um, there is a degree of uh, governance that is put forward in, in cities um, through, through, the, through the extension of powers to municipalities. And in some ways, you know, this is where the site of a lot of politics is. So especially in cities like Bombay, Madras and Calcutta, uh, the municipalities where the action is, uh, people who we think of today as national leaders often sort of begin their careers in these forefronts because it's one of the few bodies that has to some extent some limited power and at least there's a possibility of contesting some kind of election because it's a very limited franchise but there is some franchise. So between wealthy landowning men of the cities, there's a sort of public, uh, public sphere that's emerging. And it feeds in very well to, if you look at sort of the growth of uh, um, Congress politics or nationalist politics in the period, um, a lot of it, even under Tilak and uh, the so-called extremist members of the Congress, was uh, in cities amongst this group of people who were finding themselves impatient with the pace of change from the government. So they're trying to push for push for other uh, sort of non-constitutional tactics as well. But in a way, some of this was enabled by the fact that you had this kind of electoral forum in which, you know, you can make the claim to represent represent people. So uh, one of the sort of um, things people often comment on is that unlike uh, the West, there's been no sort of big debate about whether India should have been a democratic country or not. Uh-huh. And uh, people argue that it was very hard for nationalists to not push for democracy or suffrage because in some ways the claim they begin making from the late 19th century is that uh, the reason why the, the, the logic behind rule is not necessarily efficiency. The British could have ruled us more efficiently and they wouldn't have legitimized their rule anymore. The logic is that a people should be able to you know, rule themselves. And if even if you're an elite group of people making the argument, you have to, at some point of time, realize that the argument has to sort of include everyone. So the sort of debate about uh, adult franchise is actually um, a fairly seamless debate uh, uh, in India compared to uh, you know, countries of Western Europe. There's, there's sort of no real, very little sort of crisis about do we give, uh, you know, um, the poor the right to vote. And by the 1920s and 30s, that's sort of almost inevitable that that's going to happen. Rohit covers a, a lot of interesting ground in that recording. I had to go back and listen to it a couple of times to get all of it myself. And um, so should you. It's actually quite interesting. Next I wanted to move on to the next tranche in this story, which is the period during and just after the First World War. 
how important were these were these developments these acts these legislations so i asked rohit and i put it to him in this way i asked him if the first world war hadn't taken place would uh, the story of india's constitutional history been very different and this is what he had to say i mean the easy answer is yes it would would <laughs> have been but it's hard to speculate what else it could have could have looked like um but the war basically uh, uh reinforced several things one is that uh, it it had it greatly weakened britain in europe and sort of made um made it more dependent on its colonies in terms of getting food stuff in terms of getting raw materials um secondly the war had sort of you know the war ended with the russian revolution breaking out in uh, breaking out sort of burst of socialist ideas and this sort of sort of international demand for freedom and self determination which again sort of you know influenced people in india as well and thirdly the, the you know a lot of for example um indian soldiers had participated in the war and they would go to france or serve in france or in the middle east and and it sort of made them very aware about their position in india so there are these um, there's work that's been done on letters by indian soldiers who lived in france writing back to their families in india saying that you know we see the europeans in europe behave differently from the way they behave in india or uh, they found sometimes they were treated better when they were abroad than they were treated inside india and um, sort of this leads to a, a certain degree of popular nationalism that's that's coming out so if you look at how the national movement expands um, just after the war there's a much greater degree of popular participation that comes about um, mm-hmm. so it's a uh, it's sort of coming together with all these factors rohit did go on to uh, discuss both that history and the and aspects of the constitution especially post 1935 in our telephone call but i i'm saving a lot of that for future episodes i don't want to use up all the good stuff in one shot now before letting him go i touched upon one more topic which again we spoke about in our initial emails he said that uh, the the versions of the constitution that we finally see are not just directly uh, resultant from british legislation and uh, later on uh, draftings by certain elite indians they also incorporate um, uh, aspects of uh, an indian constitution that were drawn up by all kinds of different people including bal gangadhar tilak what rohit they referred to as previous versions so um, i asked him how important were these previous versions and um, do we see any of them in the final uh, draft indian constitution the earliest sort of recorded uh, 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 all this document we know about is something that was called the swaraj bill in 1895 i think um, and i think this is uh, authored by uh, or at least one of the authors is bal gangadhar tilak and uh, importantly the bill differs from um, uh, sort of the british constitution form in that it begins with laying out a bill of rights for uh, for all indians so rights that indians would enjoy uh, uh, again and be protected against the state and and this is actually a common theme that comes through all the reports so the, so the next big document is uh, something that's written by Annie Besant through the Home Rule League called the Commonwealth of India Bill which actually gets introduced in the British Parliament in 1925 through a private member and and once again this bill uh, you know lays out not just things like civil and political rights that um, safeguard the individual from the state but also puts in a whole degree of these social rights so uh, right to education right to healthcare basic sort of uh, labor rights so you see a coming in of uh, uh, sort of social social welfare ideas in it um 
around this time, uh, so uh, the 19, after the 1919 reforms, uh, the 1919 reforms require that there's going to be a, a, a review up to 10 years. And, and a new constitution would, would come into place. And um, this commission of uh, inquiry set up under uh, Lord Birkenhead, and this is what's called the Simon Commission. Um, and there's a lot of opposition to it by nationalists at this point of time who argue that a uh, constitution of India must be written by Indians. And the British government sort of suggests that uh, Indians are unable to write a constitution uh, uh, together. Um, famously, one of the British cabinet ministers said, you know, perhaps the best thing that we can do is try to let the Indians write the actual constitution and they'll realize that they can't get they can't work with each other, and their interests are, uh, they're, far, they're far too many clashing interests, so they'll never actually produce anything. <laughs> and uh, it's in this context that one has to look at, you know, moves like the Nehru Report, uh, which is an effort by Mohsin Nehru drawing together almost every political party in India to produce a, a fairly large um, um, constitution. And some of the things that, that carry on are, uh, these constitutions all provide for uh, a very broad bill of rights, encompassing not just traditional civil and political liberties, but also these new social welfare rights. Secondly, they all provide for a very powerful Supreme Court, which will enforce these rights against the government. And uh, none of the uh, sort of government of India act actually uh, do a lot about increasing judicial powers. In fact, we see a reduction of powers of the judiciary from the late 19th century to the early 20th century, because the government doesn't want the colonial judiciary to interfere with it very much. Um, and the third, of course, uh, uh, the question there is a question of franchise. So, uh, you know, with, with each excessive Indian authored report, there's a greater demand for extension of franchise. Um, so I think by the Nehru report, there's a demand for universal adult franchise, and this is sort of taken up again by the Congress in 32 in the session in Karachi. So, um, and there's also a very strong uh, demand for, and this is the contentious demand, is, is how our constituency is going to be uh, organized. And, as he pointed out, in 1909, um, the reforms provided for uh, separate electorates for Muslims. And uh, this is something that became an issue, uh, a contentious issue between the Congress and the Muslim League in the 20s. And um, in a way, the, uh, the Congress produced uh, documents always pushed for joint, uh, joint electorates for all communities. And they provided instead for reservations for groups like Muslims, Dalits, uh, Christians, and Sikhs. Uh, so a lot of this actually you do find coming into the constitution in 47. So we don't take separate electorates, we bring in a Bill of Rights, we bring in a powerful Supreme Court. I hope you enjoyed those excerpts from uh, my conversation with uh, Rohit. That is about 30% of everything we spoke about and um, you will hear him and some of those uh, missing clips in the next few episodes of this podcast as we go along. Now in the next episode, before we launch into more constitutional history, I will dwell a little bit on the First World War and India's role in it. Um, because I think it's one of uh, those, those periods in our history that we really don't read about too much. But um, we should because um, it affected the lives of millions of Indians, both, direct, both directly as a part of military action and indirectly back home in India. And, and I think that experience of the First World War had a profound impact on our overall history and specifically our constitutional history. But more on that next time. Take care and see you then.